challenges. What's that? Sorry. The joys of technical difficulty. We don't have permission to go live. Okay. Let's see. Go on to uh, the YouTube without. Apologies for everyone. You know, it may be because I've got something uh, horrifying to show you. I've got a picture coming up. But we shall see. Always tempted to break the, the quiet with, you know, break out in a song, Kumbaya, my Lord, something like that. strange we've never had this problem before all right just like to welcome everyone who's joining us here this is a, a part of our live stream here today it's just one part of our service here at Chelsea Community Church with City Temple you can join us on Sunday in person at 11 a.m. Or if you want the Zoom details to join us for the whole service via Zoom, then please uh, drop us an email and we'd be happy to send those to you. If you have your Bible with you, we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 as we continue this series from 1 Peter called Stranger Aliens. 1 Peter chapter 3, and we'll start with verse 1 and read down through verse 9. So 1 to 9. But before we read, let's pray. Gracious God, thank you so much for the Bible. I thank you that it is trustworthy and true. And I pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us through your word today. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would rest on me, that I can bring your word to your people today, boldly and faithfully, in honor of Jesus. We pray all this in his name. Amen. Amen. So Peter writes here, he says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children, if you do good, and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, 
sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. May God bless to us this reading from his holy word. Well, I think, uh, and we should probably take this off, the the display off the Zoom now, and just the, uh, you know, because I have to give you this trigger warning. We're about to see some explicit content and I don't want you to be too terribly offended. So, are you ready? Everybody ready? Okay, show the next picture. I mean, none of you have reacted with horror, but don't you know what this is? This is obviously it's an alien, but uh, those of you who are familiar with the Star Trek universe will immediately recognize that this is a, is a Ferengi. And not only is it a Ferengi, but it is a Ferengi woman. And in Ferengi culture, it is insulting and obscene for a woman to wear clothes. And so this is a Ferengi woman with clothes on. Aren't you horrified? Obviously not. Uh, I set you up there a little bit. Uh, You know, it's one of the great things about Star Trek. And as you figured out from this whole series, I am a bit of a sci-fi fan. And uh, it's just worked so well. I've stayed on the theme because the kids are really getting it and are really understanding it. But one of the great things about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe is in the encounter it has with different alien cultures, you get to encounter different versions of alien families. Because not all alien races are the same in the Star Trek universe. You know, some are matriarchal, some are patriarchal, uh, and so on and so forth. And, uh, and of course, the Ferengis, originally the Ferengis, uh, this is a little side note, they were supposed to be the new uh, Star Trek bad guys, you know, alongside the Klingons and the Romulans. When the next generation came, it was going to be the Ferengis were going to be the bad guys. But their motivation is greed. And the Star Trek writers realized that somebody who was just motivated by greed and profit was more of a comical character than it was a real evil bad guy. Yeah, so, so the Ferengis became more of a comical kind of race of aliens rather than a, an evil, threatening race of aliens. But uh, all these alien families you encounter, everyone is different. And the same is true for us as strange aliens in this world. You know, frankly, when a lot of people uh, who are not Christians encounter Christian families, we seem rather strange, rather odd. Uh, And a lot of people don't know what to make of Christian families. Uh, Genuine Christian families will seem like aliens. Sometimes it involves archaic language and ideas Sometimes people perceive uh, that we're too rigid, and wrongly so. Uh, Sometimes uh, people perceive that uh, Christianity oppresses women, and again, wrongly so. Part of the the reason for the appearance is that, frankly, at many points in time in Christian history, uh, Christians have oppressed women. The church has put down women. The church has not allowed women to flourish. They have not followed the example of Jesus, 
And Jesus very clearly was affirming of women. In fact, the first witness to the resurrection was a woman. But oftentimes in the history of the church, we've forgotten that. And we have allowed Christian families and Christian understandings of these things to mirror more the world than to reflect the truth of the scriptures. And whenever Christian families start to look like the world, then Christianity itself becomes weaker and weaker and weaker and less and less influential. Because it's very important. It's a, a key theme that occurs time and time throughout the New Testament, even into the Old Testament, how families under God are to organize themselves. And this is important for us as well because many of us see the church as a family. I mean, after all, we're called brothers and sisters. In fact, one of the earliest criticisms of the church were that we, we, uh, we committed incest because we were marrying our brothers and our sisters. You know, the brothers and sisters would marry each other. Uh, and so people, just, you know, from the beginning haven't really understood how we function. But even when we call the church a family, frankly, a lot of times we don't understand what that means. Because I, I see some people, they have the idea of family as, oh, let's all hold hands and sing together. And, oh, I love you. You're so wonderful. Oh, I love you. You're so wonderful. And they've never encountered a real family with, with the lots of brothers and sisters. I mean, they argue. Sometimes they punch each other. You know, families can be kind of violent at times, all in the name of love. You know, we understand this, and yet we get offended when the church kind of uh, is a bit of a messy family. But this whole idea of family and the whole idea of a Christian family, whether it be the church as the extended family of Jesus Christ or what we'd often called in the past the nuclear family, uh, the husband and wife and children and the aunts and the uncles because that's all part of the real family. The whole nuclear family of just, you know, mom and dad and two kids, that's a modern invention. That's not a historic invention and that's a Western invention. It's not a global invention, right? We understand this. We understand this. But family is absolutely essential. It's absolutely a, a cornerstone of our life together and that's why Peter spends a lot of time in his letter, his letter to remember strangers and aliens, resident aliens in this world. That's who we are. As Christians, remember, we become a totally new ethnos, a totally new ethnic group when we come together in Jesus Christ. We're a totally new creation in Jesus Christ, and we begin to have a totally new family system. And so Peter has to talk about this family system, you know, and he's been talking about us uh, as we, in, how do we live as individuals. Then he talked about how we live corporately as the church. Then he talked a little bit about our ethics when we engage with the world around us. And part of our engagement with the world and with one another happens in the context of the family. Whether we're the extended family or we're the more limited blood relation kind of family. So that's why Peter spends a lot of time on this. And for Peter, clearly, as it was for Paul, the role, the, the relationship of husband and wife was 
uh, essential, an essential component to this. Now understand, Peter is not saying here that if you're not married, you're not part of this. It's very, very important for us to understand that. I mean, Peter makes it clear in the context of this passage that he's not saying, oh, you know, husbands and wives, you're the, the, the essential, the essence of the church. And those of you who are single, uh, unmarried, whatever, you know, you're not important. He's not saying that at all. What he's saying here is that the relationship between husbands and wives uh, needs to be reflected in the relationship between all men and all women in the body of Christ and then our relationships with one another, whether we are men and our women or women, have to have certain qualities. And so the husband-wife relationship is just a model for male-female relationships in a way, with some obvious exceptions, but it's the model and it's important for us to understand that. And so Peter in this passage, he's talking about the family, he talks about how we relate to one another as part of a family and how we must live because our family is going to have different kinds of characteristics than the families at large, the families around us in the world that surrounds us. And so he's talking about how we relate to one another. And he begins here by, saying, by talking about how Christian wives relate to their husbands as a model for all women in God's household. Peter will talk about this too. I mean, he, he, uh, excuse me, Paul will talk about this too in places like 1 Timothy. So he talks about uh, how wives relate to their husbands as a model for all women in the household. And then he says, one of, the, I, you know, I, women come up to me all the time and say, Rod, this is my favorite verse. Wives, be subject to your husbands. <laughs> you know, I learned one time uh, there's only one time in my life that I've put two words together. Wife, submit. And I learned very quickly that those two words should never be used together in one sentence. Uh, so what in the world is Peter talking about here? Because I always laugh a lot. You know, there, so often you get families you know, where the men are like, well, you know, I'm tough. I'm the, I'm the head of this household. You know, I make the decisions in this household. You know, we, we agreed when we got married that I would make all the big decisions in the household and my wife, she would make all the little decisions. I, I gave her the grace to do that. And it's been great. After 30 years of marriage, I've never had to make a decision. <laughs> <laughs> you know? And this verse has been so misunderstood and so taken out of context and so misused, particularly by men, uh, and sometimes by men who claim to be Christians. And so we need to understand this whole idea of submit, or this whole idea of be subject to. And we need to translate it a little bit so that we understand it better uh, in our context. So what was Peter saying here? He's saying, wives, cooperate with your husband so that he becomes the best husband he can be, and together you achieve good outcomes for your family. That's what it is. Submission is the spirit of cooperation. You cooperate with another so that the other 
becomes the best they can be so that good things happen. So when we submit to government, what are we doing? We're cooperating with the government so that our society might achieve good outcomes. It's not saying that we have to obey the government even if the government tells us to deny Christ or to do something else that's outside of the will of God. Does that make sense? It's cooperating so that the other can become the best they can be. And that's why husbands submit to their wives as well. You say, well, where does that say that in the Bible? Ephesians 5.21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That means women submitting to men and men submitting to women. We're cooperating with one another. And I have never spoken to a wife who said, no, I would rather my husband be a lazy, uh, lay at home, doing nothing kind of guy. I, you know, I'd rather not cooperate with him so he could be the best husband he could possibly be. I'd rather him be the worst husband he could be. No woman wants that for their husband, and rightly so. And that's what Peter is saying here. Essentially saying, wives, cooperate with your husbands so that they can become the men of God that they are supposed to be so that your family can accomplish good outcomes. And that's the same in the context of the body of Christ, the wider family. Then he says a second thing for the women. Uh, basically, and I'll translate it like this. You can follow along in the text. I'm following the text straight through. Uh, and he says, adopt a way of living at home that shows Jesus in everything you do. Remember that word conduct. And Peter uses it several times in the ESV uh, translation. That word conduct, when you read it with Peter, always means a way of life or a lifestyle. So when he says, let your conduct be this way, he's saying, let your lifestyle, the way that you live, be like this. So he's, Peter says, uh, wives, let your way of living at home be such that reflects Jesus, that shows Jesus in everything you do. And as you do that, you need to be showing respect, showing respect for your husband. Uh, and women, if you, you want a key, what men need from women is respect. We need respect more than we need love. I need my wife to respect me more than I need her to love me. Because that's important to who I am and the foundation of my life as a husband. If she doesn't respect me, then I will not become the man of God that I'm supposed to be. Instead, she'll pull me down. So Peter, that's why Peter says, showing respect. And he also says to do this in a pure way. What does this mean? It means without manipulation or a personal agenda. It's, it's adopt this lifestyle without the agenda of trying to manipulate your husband to do something that you want him to do. And I've seen this happen so many times. And men, women, you're so much better at this than men are. Men, we just can't handle this. But I have seen wives, you know, the way they do, the food they prepare, uh, their offer of themselves in, in intimate relations, whatever, do this as a way to manipulate their husbands, thinking what I need to do is get my husband to meet my need. Because if only I can persuade my husband to meet my need, 
And sometimes that means I need to badger him and henpeck him and, and, and uh, harass him and tell him time after time after time after time what I need. And if only I can get him to meet my needs, then I'll be happy and he can be a good husband. If you do that, you'll destroy your husband. Your husband needs respect. Men need respect. You cannot manipulate men to meet your needs because we don't get it. We just get confused by it. We generally don't get the emotion thing. Sometimes we do, but most of the time we don't. We need very clear messages. We don't get signals. Smoke signals we don't understand. Sometimes we don't understand if you grab us, look us straight in the eye, and tell us something. It takes time. And so if you're trying to live a way of life where you're trying to manipulate a man or your husband into doing what you want or meeting a need that you feel like you have, it never works because you're trying to play the Holy Spirit in the man's life. And you cannot be the Holy Spirit for someone else. So what, what, what do we need? We need respect and we need pure, clear communication and relationship with our wives. Agenda free, subtext free, and then the Holy Spirit will work in us. If we're a believer, the Holy Spirit will work in us to help meet your needs. And you definitely have needs. We know that. We know that. And that's true not only husbands and wives, but men and women in general. Then Peter says a third thing. He says, develop your inward beauty, that beauty of spirit. Now Peter here is not saying women don't dress nice. That's not what he says at all. He's not saying, you know, don't wear jewelry, that kind of thing. Uh, the whole idea is in their adornment. You know, he's saying don't show off. Don't try to show off with, you know, your good looks and your, your nice figure and, and all those kinds of things. Yeah, we know that you have that. That's not what's important. What's important is an inward beauty of spirit that will never fade. And that you can focus on. Too many people focus on the outward. It's not wrong, but it's very, very transitory. It's the inward beauty that doesn't spoil or fade. And Peter says here, there's three aspects of inward beauty. If you want to cultivate that, there's three aspects. He says, first of all, it's gentle. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, first of all, it's gentle. That means it's friendly. It's being a true friend. It's not forceful, demanding, trying to get your own way. Uh, it's not angry. It's not harsh. It's not brutal. It's just being open, being a friend, which women are very good at doing. And then it's quiet. And again, gosh, all this is so misunderstood. By the way, that word gentle doesn't mean that women aren't tough. Women are supposed to be tough. I mean, Peter knew that. He definitely did that. Excuse me. Sorry about that. Women are definitely tough. Women are supposed to be tough. And quiet. It doesn't mean having, oh, I'm a woman. I've got such a quiet voice. I'm just, you know, I'm just so nice and I'm so dainty. 
and I'm just going to be so womany. You know, that's not what it's about. Quiet here is something that resists anxiety. Quiet is not anxious. Peter's saying your inward spirit needs to resist anxiety. You need to cultivate peace. Cultivate a sense of rest in the Lord. And the third dynamic of the inward, uh, the inward beauty is to remember that God sees it and considers it extremely precious, valuable, even if other people don't. You might think, okay, I'm cultivating that inward beauty, but nobody sees it. And God's saying, oh, I see it. And it's extraordinary. And let me tell you, over, over time, as I, I've seen so many women in my life that have this inward beauty, and when you look at it, and the number of women that's in this room, that are in this room right now, and as a man, when you open your eyes to see that, it's almost blinding in its intensity. And the thing is, so many women don't recognize it, that it's there. But it's there if you'll only open your eyes to see. And then Peter says the fourth thing that women needs to do, need to do, do good and resist anxiety and fear. And that's the example of the holy women. They're thought to do good and they would resist anxiety and fear. There's so much in the world today to make, you, make us anxious and fearful. If you're a wife and you have children, you know what anxiety is. You've seen that. You've experienced that. Anxiety is one of the most powerful forces in the world today. And anxiety overwhelms us so easily. It does with men, but it does especially with women. And so you have to resist that anxiety and instead choose to do good. And that's what Peter says. Wives, that's how you behave with your husbands. Those four things, you, you apply those four things. And then Peter turns to the men. He says, and then he starts talking about how Christian husbands relate to their wives, again, as a model for all men in God's household. And you'll notice here that Peter, what Peter says to the men is much shorter than what he says to the women. And you think, why in the world? It's like, there he goes, Peter's picking on the women. No, he's not. He knows that the women can get what he just said, but he knows if he says too much to the men, our eyes will glaze over and we'll miss it all. So he focuses in for us and he says, okay, these are the important things, you men. These are the important things. First of all, as men, as husbands, we need to build together and do life together in a household with our wives. It's not about the husband being in charge of the household. The, the words here in the Greek, and I'm not analyzing all these words, but the words here in the Greek are talking about creating a household, living life together with your wife, and it's with your wife, not against your wife, not over your wife, not under your wife, but with your wife. So you have to build that together and do life together in this household alongside your wife. That's, that's our call. That's our call. And we need to do it in what he says, an understanding way there in the ESV. It's according to knowledge or according to relational knowing. Uh, in other words, you have to build this life together with your wife 
as you get to know who she is, her personality, her likes, her dislikes. You gotta get to know who she is. You gotta get to know her preferences. You need to build this together with her according to a knowledge of her, getting really getting to know her, not trying to fix her. Big mistake, guys. You can't fix women. They can fix each other sometimes, but uh, you know, it's like a traditional mechanic trying to work on a Tesla. We just can't, we can't figure that out. We just can't figure that out, you know. Men, men, men are like, you know, the traditional cars. Women are like the Teslas. It's all about their, their uh, software. You know, men, we get the hardware stuff. We get, but you know, it's, it's that how it's worked. So you can't try to fix them. You just have to get to know them and love them. And you need to know the different way that men and women relate. And, and you know, a lot of this I've never gotten. You know, for example, if I'm together with Olashina, one of my best friends, and we're talking about something, I could say to Olashina, Olashina, you know, that's the stupidest idea I've ever heard in my life. And, and Olashina might say, well, Rod, you're the stupidest pastor I've ever seen in my life. And, and I might say, well, you're ugly too. And he might say, well, you're uglier. And, uh, you know, you just got bleached by the sun. He can, he can do anything like that. And we go back and forth, and then he'd say, let's go get a pizza. Okay. <laughs> now, I know if Karen and I are talking, and I would say to Karen, Karen, that's the stupidest idea that I've ever heard. What she would hear is, Karen, you're the stupidest woman I've ever seen. Because she's different. Men, we can tease each other. I learned a long time ago, don't tease your wife. It's not good. And it's not healthy for me. I just found out, it's just not, just not healthy. So we gotta know the difference. And we need to know what wives really want from their husbands is to be known as who they are and valued as who they are and loved as who they are. And if you get to know them, that's what they need. It's what they need. So that's why Peter says, now you've got to build, build a house together, build a home together, together with your wife. And then he says, second big thing, show honor to your wife. Show honor to your wife. Now that means you actively build up your wife. It means you're, you're relating to her to cause her to be built up, not to be torn down. Absolutely essential. And that's true, again, men to women. It's true as well. We need to show honor. Men, we have a responsibility to show honor to women. That's why things like pornography are so, so vile and evil. Because it shifts our brain and our way of thinking so that we no longer show honor, but we show dishonor. So we have to actively build them up of course, as the weaker vessel. Because as we all know, women can't handle pain. They can't handle difficulty. They can't, no, that's not true. You know that's not true. Obviously, if women can give birth to children, they can deal with a lot more pain than I can. Right? So what is this weaker vessel stuff? Again, so totally misunderstood. But the weaker vessel is something that can break, and it's easy for you to break, 
Get that? Easy for you to break. And it's something that's precious. You know, we have dishes at our home that obviously we don't want anybody to break. But if they drop a plate and break it, so what? We can buy a new one. But there are other things that if it got dropped and broken, it would break our hearts because it's precious. And so we need to treat precious things as the precious things they are. We need to treat precious people as the people they are. Women aren't things, obviously. They're precious. Your wife needs to know that she is significant, secure, and accepted when she's with you, that you are going to protect her, that you think that she is the most important woman in your life, that you appreciate who she is. And you need to understand that as you're showing her honor, you show her honor as a co-heir of the grace life. Now here, in this translation, it says grace of life. It means grace life. The grace life that we all live in Jesus, our wives are co-heir alongside of us. They're not below us. They're not above us. They're alongside of us. We move together. We exist together. And we do this. We show this honor. Get this. So that our prayers are not hindered. So that our ministry is not hindered. You know, one of the worst things about pornography is it affects your ministry as a man. Doesn't matter if nobody sees you do it. It affects your ministry. It affects your prayers. If you fail to show honor to women, and you fail to show honor especially to that woman who is the most precious person in your life, your prayers will be hindered. They will be thwarted. They will be compromised. They will be disempowered. And so Peter says, okay, guys, build a house together alongside your wife or men in the body of Christ. Build the household of God alongside women, with women, and also show honor to women. Show honor to your wife. Show honor to women gen generally. And then he goes on and says, now all of you, whether you're a man or a woman, you need to learn how to relate to one another as brothers and sisters in God's household. So how do we relate? And these are commands. These are commands. The Greek makes this very clear. He says, one, have unity of mind. That means that you're, you're thinking and choosing together. Now, this is not about consensus. It's not about you agree with everybody all the time. But it does mean at the end of the day that you agree to move together. I had an elder in my uh, last church uh, who used to be uh, a captain or a lieutenant uh, in the Coast Guard, U.S. Coast Guard, in the military. And he said that uh, he was a lieutenant because uh, he said that there would be times when they're together in uh, the war room, if you will, on the ship, and the captain is asking for opinions and things like that, and he listens to everybody, uh, but then there's a moment in the time when the captain says, okay, this is how we're going, and everybody says, yes, sir. And they move, or yes, ma'am, and they move with the captain. They move with the captain, and that's what uh, Peter's talking about here. It's okay to express disagreements, differences of opinion, but at some point in time, we decide we're going. And then we move. And we submit to one another. And we work together and cooperate. 
So he says, have that unity of mind. Have that unity of how you think and how you choose things. Have a sense of harmony, a sense of oneness. And then he says, have sympathy. Now, sympathy is about your feelings. And Kate loves this one. You know, it's about your feelings. It means feel together. Seek to understand how other people feel about things. Seek to understand the emotions they're experiencing, the experiences that they've gone through. Seek to understand, to come together. Then you need brotherly love, and that's affection and kindness. It's a genuine sense of friendliness that we have toward one another. Brotherly love is important. It's a different word than the word agape, you know, which is the kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing love for others' benefit. This is an affection for one another. Cultivate that. Then you need to have good-heartedness. That means you need to be generous and compassionate toward one another, wanting the best for others. That's what good-hearted means. You see the picture. This is what has to characterize our relationships. And anything that violates these things, we should immediately call one another up on because they destroy the family. They destroy the household. And then he says, we need to be humble-minded. That means you don't think about yourself, your wants, and your preferences. It's always thinking about other people. Well, you say, well, what if, you know, what if people aren't meeting my needs? Well, then you pray. And you ask the Lord. And you allow the Lord to step in. And you be patient while you continue to be humble-minded. Absolutely essential. Absolutely essential. Now notice how all of these things, these commands, are really about your character. It's really about how you relate to one another. But then he has a command as well about ministry. And I'm, I'm going to just briefly touch it this week because it's a carryover as well into what he says next week. Because we'll start with it next week. But he says, bless. What are we supposed to do? We bless one another. That, in one word, that sum up, sum, summarizes our ministry together as Christians. We bless. We bless. We bless. Blessing is the essence of Christian ministry. Bless means literally to speak well of others. To speak good out but it also means to extend the favor of God to others. It's to proclaim and also bring the shalom, the well-being of God to other people. At the end of the service, when I lift my hands and I speak a blessing, that is actually communicating something to you that has power because of the authority that I carry in Jesus Christ. And that's the same with every single one of us. Because of the authority that you carry in Christ, when you speak well of other people, when you seek to extend God's favor to other people, there is a power and God does something in it. And so he says, don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but bless because that's your pathway to inherit a blessing as well. That's how you're going to receive a blessing, by blessing others. And so we have this pattern, not only for Christian families with husbands and wives as the foundation, but also the extended pattern for
for how men and women relate to one another in the body of Christ, and then how we all relate to one another, whether or not we are men, whether or not we are women. And sometimes this seems like an alien concept and an alien way of living, but it is absolutely essential if the church is to have an impact. It's absolutely essential if we are to extend the kingdom of God into the world around us. If you look historically, you could see the decline of Christian influence in societies has generally coincided with the breakdown of Christian families. Where it happened in Western nations like the UK, like the United States, is when churches started to normalize divorce and make it just any other thing. You know, anybody could do it, even now the Roman Catholics. You know, you, can, you can't get a divorce, but you can get an annulment with four kids and, you know, 15 years living under the same roof. It doesn't make sense. But that's the way it goes. So you can see how Christian influence has steadily declined as soon as Christian churches normalized divorce. Not to say that there weren't in the past reasons to get divorces. There were, and the Bible talks a lot about that. And then you see it further with the breakdown of the understanding that the primary discipler of children is the parent. Parents, biblically, have responsibility to raise up their children in the knowledge of the Lord. But you see, in the West, what, what have we done? We farmed out our kids to kids' programs and things like that so they're not in the adult's hair while we're doing the real stuff of worshiping the Lord. And it's no wonder when they get to be 13, 14 years old that they're leaving. Now let me tell you, when I was a kid, sitting in the pew alongside my mom way before I became a Christian, I was bored out of my gourd. And in fact, after I became a Christian, and I was sitting in the pew, often not with my mom now, but I was sitting in the pew, I was bored out of my gourd. I thought, man, will that minister never stop talking? I like him, but gosh, if he, on the prayer, all the prayers were so long. I'm just like, this is a good time to take a nap. <laughs> you know, I understand this, but every bit of that was an input into my life that made the difference and helped me to become the man of God that I am today. And that's why we have the kids in the sanctuary, because they hear. And they understand, and they see what you do. They see if you're looking at your phone playing games. You know, they see. They see what you do. And we've seen, we've seen the decline of the influence of the church as we've seen the rise of cohabitation and sex outside of marriage and the normalization of that inside the church. And so it's no wonder. It's no wonder that the church has lost so much of its influence. And even churches themselves, we have to admit, have not been healthy households. So many churches have not been healthy families. And I've seen that. I've lived through it. I know the reality of it. And even more, that's why we must embrace what Peter is saying for us. Because the disintegration of family leads to the disintegration of society. We've seen that. 
Re recent research has shown once again that children flourish better in two-parent families. Husband and wife, married. Now that's not to say that single-parent families, we know that reality. This is not passing judgment. And in fact, as the church, we're committed, as a church, we're committed to single-parent families here because we believe that it takes a church to raise a child. And we believe that children need the example of other men and women in the body of Christ. And so we make no judgments here, except to say that we can see the correlation, if not the causation, of what's happening in the world around us. <laughs> and how our world desperately needs the church who acts like the alien family that it is and the alien families within the church who act like the alien families that they are. And we have to remember, this only happens by God's grace through faith in Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's about the grace life. You can't force this. And I know that so many of us deal with so many levels of brokenness. And I hope you don't hear a single word of judgment and anything I've said, because it's not. It's our pattern. It's where we're going. It's how we're growing. We know that we're all broken. We know that we all have sin. We know that we all have fallen short of the glory of God and God's plan and God's ideals. That's why Jesus died on the cross for us. And Jesus not only died on the cross for us, he set us free from the power of sin so that we don't have to continue to live in our brokenness. We don't have to continue to behave out of that brokenness. I don't have to treat my mom, my wife as my dad treated my mom. I don't do that. I don't have to live out of that because I've been set free from those patterns in Jesus Christ. And with that as a foundation, that encourages us to press on to have healthy alien households and become as a church a healthy alien household and have healthy alien male-female relationships and have healthy alien relationships one to another. As Christians, we're realists, we're not idealists. But we know that the true reality is in Jesus Christ, not in the messed up brokenness of this world. And that reality, the reality that we can live into by grace through faith in Jesus, that is the reality that carries us forward. Let's pray. Lord God, I love you and praise you and worship you. I do pray, Lord, that this message will go out clearly. I pray against any kind of condemnation, any kind of sense of guilt or judgment or shame. We bind and rebuke that in the name of Jesus because we declare there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and that Jesus has borne all our guilt and shame in the cross of Christ. And he's conquered them all in his resurrection. And so with that at our heart, knowing that we're forgiven, knowing that we've been set free, knowing that we've been transformed into a new alien race, let us live like it. By your grace, not by works and effort, but by your grace, let us relate to one another in healthy ways as men and women. And let us relate to one another overall in healthy ways 
as the household of God, the family of brothers and sisters, with our elder brother Jesus Christ and our Father, the Almighty God in heaven and the Holy Spirit who links us together. We love you and praise you and thank you and pray all this through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's join in singing our closing song of praise.